Okay, guys, we are, we're in lesson five today. We're in Acts chapter two. Last week, we saw the fulfillment of the promise. That leads into what we're going to be looking at today, which is Peter's message. Now, I want to, I just want to qualify some things here. Again, we're looking at a historical account. So we're only going to know what the Spirit of God led Luke to write here. So you're not going to know everything that's happened at this event or everything about Peter's sermon. But we've got Peter's sermon here, but I want to point out a couple of things here to help you to understand. When you look at this sermon, you need to consider who he's speaking to. Because people will look at this and say, wow, Two, 3,000 people added to the church in one day. That's going to happen today. I want you to think about who he's speaking to. So his group there primarily is what? Anybody can tell me? The people who were there, who were gathered outside after the Spirit came, the rushing sound, the disciples speaking in other languages. Who were the people that were gathered together there? Jews, so, and proselytes. So he's speaking primarily to a Jewish crowd. Now this is what I want you to understand. With a Jewish crowd, how much understanding of the scripture would they have? They should have a lot, okay? Should have a lot. So I, that's what I want you to understand. They had an understanding of the scripture. Now, we're going to look, it's going to be a few weeks before we get there, but when you get over to Acts chapter 17, you see the Apostle Paul, and he's in Athens, and he's addressing a crowd, completely different type of sermon. Primarily, that crowd is made up of what? Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, philosophers, and so forth. What kind of understanding of the Jewish scriptures do they have? None. What was the response? Thousands came to the Lord that day? Anybody remember? Just a handful. Some followed, some considered, some mocked. Here's what I want you to understand. You have to understand that evangelism is a process. It's a process of moving people towards an understanding of Christ so they can understand him and accept him as their savior. If they have no understanding, their, their chances of responding to your gospel is going to be small. I'm just being very honest with you, okay? So for instance, this was a, this was a statistic that came out about 20 years ago. When Billy Graham did his evangelistic crusades, has anybody ever watched Billy Graham on TV or you know, or, or, or went to a crusade or something? Okay. What they, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Society keeps meticulous records. It's, it's very interesting. They keep meticulous records about the people who respond at their crusades. And what they found was this, is that 90% of the responses at a Billy Graham crusade were from people who had a church background. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're from people who already had an understanding of the Bible. 90%, only 10% 
of the people who responded at a Billy Graham crusade were from, were from folks who never even had any type of church background or understanding. 90% were, uh, were people who were church people. Now, that makes sense. If you're giving the gospel, and if you think about Billy Graham's got presentation, it's a pretty standard presentation that any Christian would understand, right? Okay? This is my point. So when you look at the book of Acts and you're looking at the historical record, you've got to keep these things in mind. Now, the book I was reading was a book called Living Proof by, by Peterson. It was on lifestyle evangelism. His point was is that we're not reaching the unreachable. Because we're assuming an understanding of the Bible with people. And that was 20 years ago. Here we are today where the fastest growing group in America is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who have no understanding. So you have to consider that when you're sharing the gospel now, you're not going to necessarily um, be able to get them to make a decision if they don't have an understanding of the scriptures. So this is what I want you to keep in mind as we look at this passage, okay? Because you're dealing with a crowd, and listen, look at Peter's sermon when we go through it. We're dealing with a crowd who has an understanding, okay? Has an understanding. And if all things they would have an understanding of is who? The Messiah. Because they've been waiting for him, okay? All right, let's, so let's look at this. We're going to look at, first of all, verses 14 through 21. Look at chapter 2. 14 through 21. Notice what Peter says. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And my manservants, and on my manservants, and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth beneath, blood and fire and a vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, let's, let's take a look at this passage. First thing I want you to notice here is this. Peter, with the 11 apostles, addresses the crowd... Uh, that had gathered. So he, here's Peter. Remember now, they're out. Spirits come upon them. They're speaking in other languages. The big crowd has gathered because of the sound and, and, and the chaos that's happening. You know, of course, they're speculating. They're wondering what's going on. Some are mocking them. So Peter uses this as an opportunity to, to address the crowd. So he states that the disciples are not drunk since it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. 
Now, let me help you understand. When you're reading the Bible, you'll, you'll, you'll hear things like the sixth hour or the third hour. What it's talking about is, is the hour beyond sunrise. So let's say the sun rises at six. Three hours later is what? Nine. Or when Jesus was crucified, six, that's at noon. Do you understand? Or you, you, you understand based upon when the sun rises. Now, they were a little bit more, had a little bit more sense than we do. They didn't have daylight savings time. So, uh, so it's nine o'clock in the morning. Now, he's going to go right into the prophecy of Joel. So I want you to notice. Peter proclaims that what is happening is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. So what's going on? He's saying to these Jews, all right, stop for a moment. If he was talking to Gentiles, would he say, what's going on is the fulfillment of Joel? Would they even know who Joel is? Did you understand what I'm saying? This gives you some kind of insight when you're talking to people, don't automatically assume that they have an understanding of the Bible or if they've even read the Bible, okay? So here he is, he's talking to these guys and he, immediately they should resonate. This is what the prophet Joel said. Joel will find his complete fulfillment when Israel turns to Jesus at his second coming. So this is a partial fulfillment. When you read through this prophecy, you're going to see here in Acts that some of the things are being exhibited, but some of them are not going to happen until later. And we'll, we'll discuss that as we go through. So notice now, the last days refers to the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So we're living in the last days. Okay? The last days refers to the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Peter calls them to recognize that the prophecy stated that God would pour out his spirit. He wants these Jews to remember that the prophecy said that there would come a time when God would pour out his spirit. And this is what he's saying is being fulfilled that day at Pentecost. This is what he's saying is being fulfilled that day at Pentecost. Now listen, prophecy does not mean the foretelling of the future, but the proclamation of God's will. So here's what I want you to understand. Okay. I'm going to tell you what prophecy is not and what it is. Okay, here's what it's not, if you want to write this down. Prophecy is not a prediction. I want you to get that in your mind. Prophecy is not a prediction. What do you mean, George? It's predicting a whole lot of things that's happening in the future. Listen to me. You as North Americans have a presupposition in your mind that when somebody predicts something, there's always a possibility that it's not going to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when the weatherman predicts what the weather is today, do you pay attention to that? Some. But... Are you surprised if he's a liar and he tells you that today is going to be a beautiful day and you planned this nice picnic and you go in outside and it was a thunderstorm? Are you, are you calling up the local station and saying to you, you dirty rat, look at what you did to me? No, you've already made the decision in your heart 
long before that, this is a prediction. There's a possibility that it will what? Go wrong. Here's what I want you to understand. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is not necessarily, it's not a prediction, but here's what it is. Prophecy is the proclamation of truth. So, when, so, when, so prophecy is not just talking about things that are going to happen in the future, but they're talking about things that are happening now. Because a prophet spoke to both. A prophet would speak to the current situation, but the prophet would also speak concerning what was going to happen in the future. And what he would say is, is this is what God says is going to happen. He's communicating what? Truth. So is there a possibility that it won't happen? No, because it's truth. This is what God says is going to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, now stop for a minute. You say, ah, I'm kind of skeptical, George. I'm not sure if I agree with you. I don't know, man. Seriously? Sounds kind of like a stretch. Really? All right, what happened to a guy in the Old Testament under the law who made a false prophecy? Anybody? Why? A lie, but why, why stone the guy? Okay, so he's leading people astray with his false prophecies, but it's got more to do with it than just that. It's not just that he's leading people astray. When he's communicating, when a prophet would speak, false or not, he would always communicate that this is the word of who? Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the truth of Jehovah. And so if what he said was found to be wrong, he was to be what? Stone, because what he did was, is by saying something wrong, he was reflecting very poorly on who? On God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why God dealt very strongly with false prophecy, because prophecy is not a prediction, folks. Prophecy is a statement that this is from God, and this is truth. This is what's going to happen, period. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what's going to happen. So, so I want you to understand that. So what we're going to see here is, what we have happening here is a foretelling of the truth of the future. It's not just right then, but also some things that are going to happen in the future. So this, this part of Joel's prophecy refers to events surrounding the second coming. So if you look at verses 17 through 18, these, these verses are talking about what's happening at that time. When you get to verses 19 through 20, that's talking about the future. So look at verses 19 and 20. I will show wonders in heaven, signs in earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon shall be turned to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. All right, anybody know what that would be referring to? It's a future... That's not right then. Yes, but also what period happens right before Jesus comes back. Yeah, these are, when you look at Revelation, you'll see that these events take place in the tribulational period. All right, so what we're seeing here is, is that he's calling to recognize these events. This part uh, refers to events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. Now, Joel's prophecy refers to the events of the tribulation. 
this part of Joel's prophecy. Okay? Now, but verse 21, he's going to make a point here, and here's the point. Salvation is available to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is available to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so now we're going to get to verses 22 and 24, where he's going to talk about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put it and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. Okay, so let's talk about the gospel here. So first thing, Peter proclaims that God validated Jesus Christ through his miracles. First thing you're going to see is all the time in the New Testament that Jesus' ministry was often, when it was questioned, was often validated by what? His miracles. So remember when uh, John's disciples came to him, came to Jesus because John sent them, John's in prison. And they came and they said, here's the question, are you the one? Remember that? What did Jesus say to validate who he was? Okay, Bruce is saying a paraphrase that he would say, at least believe, okay. He, would, he told him, go back and tell John what you have what? Seen. And then he quotes Isaiah. Okay? Now, it's interesting to me. He quotes Isaiah, but he leads one part of the Isaiah quote out. That's something for you to look on your own. What is it? He sets the captives free. Why? He's telling John, you're going to die there. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're going to die there. He tells him everything else except the one thing that John wants to know. Are you the guy who's going to set me free? No, John, I am the guy, because notice what he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me, who don't stumble at me. So that's something for you to understand, okay? Because, all right, so notice now, Peter proclaims that God validated Jesus through his miracles. Jesus was taken unlawfully, crucified and killed according to God's predetermined plan. I want everybody to recognize that. Nothing happened to Jesus that did, did not go according to God's plan. Okay? Now, what do you think the phrase lawless hands means? Anybody? Look at the phrase there. It is verse 23. You have taken by lawless hands. What do you think that refers to? I don't know, George. Uh, lawless. When you say, think about lawless, say lawlessness strikes Kerwinsville, okay? What does that mean? 
Okay. Okay, all right. That's good, Bruce. All right, that's a good thought. Anybody else with something different? All right, here, here's, here's actually, that could be part of it. Another view is, is what he's referring to here is, who are lawless people to the Jews? Gentiles. Because he was killed by who? Romans. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He was killed by the Romans. All right? He was killed by the Romans. So, what we see here is he's saying that Jesus was taken unlawfully, crucified, and according to God's predetermined plan. Now, Peter proclaims that God raised up Jesus because death could not hold him. So if you notice there, Peter's saying very, very clearly that God raised him up, he was resurrected because death couldn't hold him. So now we get to, because he's raised an issue now that's going to be, if you're, if you're the Jewish listener there listening, and you hear this guy telling you that Jesus Christ was crucified, yeah, I knew that, yeah, I, I heard that, or I saw that, yeah, and then Peter's saying he was raised up because death couldn't hold him. Oh, wait a minute now. He's talking about the resurrection. How do you know that? Okay? He's going to, if you're the listener, you're going to start questioning, especially if you're a Jewish listener. Are you sure about that? So now, listen to me. Here's what he does with his argument, with his sermon. Verses 25 through 35, he's going to give proofs of the resurrection. He's going to give Proofs of the resurrection. So notice with me verses 25 to 31. He's going to talk about David's testimony. For David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh was, will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, let's stop for a moment. What do you think that word corruption means, that his flesh would not see corruption? Yeah, to, to, the process of decomposition, that wouldn't happen. Okay, now so let's notice now. Here's David's testimony. David quote, Peter quotes David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, as he predicts the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's quoting Psalm 16. He points out that David is not speaking of himself, 
since they have his tomb among him. So he's telling them, hey, David's not talking about himself, folks, because, hey, weren't you just down on the side road here and noticed that big tomb over there? That was David's tomb. Okay? So now we come to verse 32. He's going to give the second proof. Eyewitnesses. Look at verse 32. This Jesus Christ has raised up of which we are all witnesses. So here's what's going on. Peter proclaims that they are witnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. Let me just stop for a moment. This was the primary message of the church in the early days because they testified, and notice now, Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were over 500 witnesses. Over 500 people could say they saw Jesus Christ alive. Do you understand what I'm saying? They saw Jesus Christ alive. Now there's some implications for that for you and I today when it comes to our evangelism, but we don't, we, we don't have time to talk about that right now. So um, notice now, He's going to give a third proof. He's going to talk about the events of Pentecost. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So here's what he's saying. Because Jesus Christ is exalted to God's right hand, the outpouring of the Spirit has taken place. He's saying here's another proof. What you see happening right now is a direct correlation to Jesus' resurrection because he sits on the right hand of the Father. The Father gave him the Spirit. The Spirit now is poured out upon us. That's what you see happening here. Okay? So now, here's the fourth thing he says. Verse 34, 35. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he but says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David proclaimed that the Messiah would ascend to a place above all of his enemies. So David proclaimed that Jesus would ascend to a place above all of his enemies. So now we get to where Peter's going to wrap it up. He's going to do a call to repentance. So I want you to notice with me verses 36 through 39. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. All right, so let's notice now. Here's what we're going to see. First of all, Peter calls the Jews to understand that God made the crucified Jesus both Lord and Messiah. So he's saying, listen, you need to understand 
God has exalted him to a place where he's not just a deliverer, that's what the Messiah concept was, was a deliverer, but that he's also Lord. Now notice now, upon hearing this, upon hearing his message, there's this desperation from the crowd. And because they were convicted about the death of Jesus, they asked Peter what they can do. What can we do? We've crucified our Messiah. We're guilty. We've rejected him. So Peter caused them to repentance, to repentance leading to salvation and to be baptized. Peter caused them to repentance leading to salvation, a repentance leading to salvation and to be baptized. So now, the promise. Then they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is available to all who are saved. 